All right, good morning. All right, my name is Chris, one of the pastors here at Parkside, and uh, we are making our way through the book of Hebrews. And if I can get my stuff set up here, we'll be good to go. So we're in Hebrews 5, um, into Hebrews 6. Next week we will be in Hebrews 6, 4 and following, which will be, you want to be here for that one, that's a... Uh, Probably one of the most difficult, probably the most difficult passage in the book of Hebrews, and uh, we'll look at that together. So let me pray for us, uh, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for every individual soul that's here this morning. Um, God, I pray that whatever they're bringing today, whatever anxieties, burdens, fears uh, that lay upon their souls, God, whatever hardness of heart or callousness they may have, that God, you will remove any and all distractions. You would soften hearts. You would make us all pliable and teachable as we stand before you uh, this morning. God, we know that you see us for who we really are. You know us better than we know ourselves. And yet, God, for those who have come to Christ, we are received and loved by you. I pray, God, that, uh, that, Lord, you would guide us in our time together, help us to understand what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, passivity is a major problem uh, in our culture today. Though women contribute, I would say that men are the main culprits of this. They tend to drag their feet, uh, refusing to grow up, and grow ever more passive by the day. Uh, Matt Chandler, in his book, uh, Mingling of Souls, has gone so far as to say the root sin, plaguing masculinity, is the sin of passivity. It's an unwillingness to grow. Mature, an unwillingness to take the lead and be responsible. Matter of fact, if you go all the way back to the very first sin in the Bible, the very first sin that put us all on the trajectory of this uh, back with, in the Garden of Eden, listen to this. And maybe you've never noticed this before. Maybe you've read this passage, heard this passage, but listen carefully and just watch, watch Adam here in this passage. Genesis 3 6. So when a woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Did you catch that? The silence of Adam is deafening. He is, I don't know if he's, if he's like eating popcorn, he's got his thing of Mike and Ike's, and he's just kind of watching his wife do this, but he is saying absolutely nothing. He watches the entire scene take place and says nothing, does not step up. While, while the serpent was engaging Eve, tempting her to disbelieve and disobey God, Adam apparently just stood there, mute, mutely witnessing the whole scene. He doesn't say a word. He takes no action other than to join in the rebellion with her. And since that time, each man has followed in Adam's footsteps by refusing to step into what God has called them to do. They, in general, won't lead They won't step into the fray. They won't engage, and they won't own what God wants them to own. Men, this makes the greatest fight of your life, okay? The greatest fight of your life, not lust, not against greed, not against arrogance, but against passivity. Passivity. It's infecting the heart of every man since the fall. And all of this passivity has resulted in a culture today of what we would call prolonged immaturity. Okay, prolonged immaturity, both for men and women. Uh, you can call it the Peter Pan syndrome. Okay? And actually, that's not a made-up word. That's actually literally in 
is a title in, <laughs> in books. Let me give you a definition of what is called the Peter Pan Syndrome. See if this is applicable for today. This is in a medical journal. Listen. The Peter Pan Syndrome affects people who do not want or feel unable to grow up. People with the body of an adult but the mind of a child. They don't know how to or don't want to stop being children and start being mothers or fathers. Peter Pan syndrome can affect both sexes, but it appears most often in men. Some characteristics of the disorder are the inability of individuals to take on responsibilities, to commit themselves or to keep promises, excessive care about the way they look, and personal well-being, and their lack of self-confidence, even though they don't seem to show it and actually come across as exactly the opposite. The Peter Pan syndrome. Psychologist Dan Kiley first coined that phrase back in 1983, but the concept goes way back before Disney's Peter Pan. It goes back to Greek mythology, actually. In Greek mythology, they had a child god okay, who stayed forever young, stayed forever as a child. Uh, they called this eternal boy. They called him poor Iternius is his name. And in the stories in the Greek mythology, this boy, he covets independence and freedom. He chases at any boundaries and limits and tends to find any restriction intolerable. This pretty much describes our culture today, right? Especially men. And while immaturity is actually a natural stage of human development, right? It's a natural stage. There's immaturity and you grow to maturity. The sad part is that that stage of immaturity in our culture today is just expanding and growing with the years. Thomas Hine, in his book, The Rise and Fall of the American Teenager, which I would highly recommend just from a sociological study of America and teenagers. It's called The Rise and Fall of the American Teenager. He argues that prior to the Industrial Revolution, boys and girls were considered men and women when they reached puberty. It was common, he says, for marriages to take place in the teenage years for most of history and to see young people take on responsibility for their own lives. But after World War II, we, we removed most young men out of the workforce, promoted the idea of high school, and then created a new category for young people that didn't exist before called the teenager, or another word for that, the adolescent. Fast forward to today, and we have now the expectation of, of college on top of high school uh, for most young people, where they, in many, many ways in our culture, major in good times. And then after college, they flounder many times. They return home to live in mom's basement for another decade while still wearing their footed Spider-Man pajamas with Star Wars, Star Wars posters on the wall while playing Xbox all day. Right? This is, you can see this in our culture. Right? This is what's happening. We actually have a phrase today. We have a stage now for the 20s now. It's called adult essence. Kid you not, it's a real phrase. Adult essence. We've gone from adolescence to adult essence, and we really don't grow up until we're in our 30s. It's just progressing, right? Our culture is growing more and more immature. Just take marriage as an example. 1970, 21% of 25-year-olds were unmarried. 21%. By 2005, the percentage had jumped to 60%. In 2016, it's nearly 80%. The average marriage now is 29 for women, 31 for men. That's a nine-year increase on average in the last 20 years. And many times the result of this prolonged immaturity is years wasted, a lot of times, in pursuit of things that really don't matter. And so all of us, no matter what stage you find yourself in today, have some growing up to do. Immaturity plagues the older and the younger, male or female, single or married. Because when we go to the Bible, we are called to mature. We are called by God to grow up. And we're supposed to do that until the day we die. We never cease growing up. We never cease maturing. There's never a moment in your life where you, quote-unquote, arrive. I got this. 
I am like Christ, <laughs> right? There, there's never a moment that you arrive. You are continuing to pursue, continue to grow, continue to learn about the person and work of Christ. And while the culture around us prolongs irresponsibility, Jesus calls us to be responsible. And while the culture around us uh, encourages and promotes narcissism, Jesus calls us to love and selflessness. And while the culture around us advocates us having no plan, Jesus advocates having a plan. And while the culture around us encourages us to act like children, Jesus calls us to act like men and act like women. As we come to our passage in the book of Hebrews, this is what we're facing. The writer is shocked by what he's observing in the church of a great amount of immaturity. This is a small church. Remember, we talked about this back in ancient Rome, in the very middle of that ancient city. And he's been addressing this kind of concept and addressing them to grow up throughout this book thus far. And he's greatly concerned for them, and he's greatly concerned for us. They face external pressures, and they face internal pressures, right, in the result of following Jesus. We've talked about these, the external pressures that they are facing. They are facing the abandonment of family and friends for identifying with Christ. They're facing the, the loss of jobs. They're facing the loss of their property because of that. But really, ex- the external part of it is really not the issue as much as it is internally. Internally, they're facing great pressures and great danger in the form of compromise and laziness as the culture ceases to press them into its mold. These guys are, we would call, third-generation Christians. or a third-generation of them. And they have begun to say, in a way, take it easy with Jesus in the church. He has told them that they are drifting away. Remember chapter 2, they're in danger of drifting away. They're neglecting the great salvation they claim to have, and their hearts are growing hard, their ears are growing dull, and they're losing their desire to press on to maturity, and they're growing more weak and sluggish and lazy by the day. Some of them have become, as we'll see in chapter, chapter 10, have become very inconsistent even in gathering together, right, as a church. They have virtually unplugged themselves from the local body of Christ. They're in grave danger because, as Peter will talk about, that is Satan's very tactic. is to isolate you, pull you out, get you on your own, and he's like a roaring lion, right, seeking someone individually to devour. He's looking for the person in isolation. He's looking for the person off outside the body who is just kind of wandering off by themselves. They're saying, you know what, I, I love Jesus. I don't need the church. And that's what these guys are in danger of doing. And the writer loves them too much to see them just drift out to sea, to see them just take a back seat. For not only do their lives depend on it, and here's why this is important. It's not just your life that depends on it. Your maturity is not just about you. It's about the next generation that follows you, who are watching you, and your maturity and your growth, right? Just think about it. In many ways, if this church didn't, put it, didn't get it together, if they didn't put it in gear and start moving, the, the idea of this whole generation of Christians would have just stopped. We wouldn't be here today. There would be no Bible to hand on to us because they would have stopped and they would have given up, right? You understand how important it is for you who say you know and love Christ to continue to pursue him and go after him because the next generation is to follow. We are responsible for that. These guys come from a long line of godly men and women. We come from a long line of godly men and women. That's why the entirety of Hebrews 11 is spent on that. You may know Hebrews 11. We haven't gotten there yet, but you sometimes call it the Hall of Faith. There are all these listed names of people who have followed God and pursued Christ in their lives. That's why he lists them. Guys, keep, keep here's the torch. It's in your hands now. Let's press on to maturity. Let's grow up. 
Let's move forward. And so they have to pick up their oars. They have to put the oars in the water, and they've got to start rowing because they are drifting. And you, my friends, may be drifting, right, in danger of making shipwreck of our lives and shipwreck of the next generation. And so here's what we're going to look at in our passage this morning. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the cause of immaturity. What's the cause of it? Number two, the result of it, what happens as a result of being immature. And then lastly, what is the solution to immaturity? Number one, the cause of immaturity. Verse 11 says, we have much to say. It's hard to explain that you become dull of hearing. Now, the writer wants to, to move on to some deeper truths here about Jesus. He wants to continue to point them. Last week, we saw how Jesus was that high priest, right? He wants to dig into that. And he made a little comment about a guy named Melchizedek or as I like to call him, Melky, okay? They made a comment about Melky, and they want to go into that, and he wants to tell more about it, and he's going to get to it, right? He is eventually here. If you keep reading ahead, chapter 7, he's going to get into uh, this teaching he wants to get to, but he pauses because he's like, I've got to address you here personally. And so he's like, just as a pastor, just loves his people. He wants to address them about this issue. He realizes his people aren't going to be able to process it in their current state. Something has gone wrong in their progression and development in Christ. In many ways, it is halted or even gone to be reverted. And so he's like, look, guys, I've got so much more to tell you about Jesus. I want to, I want to tell you about it. I want you to know more. I want there's more life. There is deeper water. There is more beauty. There is more to be in awe of. And I would love to teach it to you. And I would love for your soul to grasp how infinitely valuable and beautiful and mighty Jesus is and to fill your soul up with him. But I can't even begin to explain it because you've become, he says, dull of hearing. It's as if they are, they're a computer with a short in it, unable to process the information. Somewhere along the lines, they've moved from being kind of a, a Tigger type, you know, energetic, excited about their walk to turn into the DMV Sloss and Zootopia film. Remember those guys? If you don't remember, there they are right there. That's kind of what they've become, right? Have you ever seen this film? They just, uh, they just kind of just grown dull and slow of hearing, spiritually lazy, slow to respond to God's word. And the problem wasn't the lack of teaching. This is important for you to understand. It, the problem wasn't a lack of teaching. They had good teaching, right? The Bible is, I mean, so far in Hebrews, there's a lot of great teaching, a lot of deep stuff there. That wasn't the problem. The problem was their lack of responsiveness to what they have been taught. Many in our culture believe that the problem with the world is just a lack of education, right? It's a lack of information. If people just had more information and more, more education, then the problems of the world would be solved. We just need more education. The writer is telling us that you can give more education and information. The problem is not that. You need to understand these guys are these guys in this in this culture. They're they're Jewish by background. That's why it's called the Book of Hebrews, right? It's written to Hebrews, and so they they are they have a lot of information. They grew up in the in the synagogues. You can bet their mom had them in the synagogue pew every Sunday, right? They were sitting there. They were memorizing the first five books of the Old Testament. They had a lot of information in their head. That wasn't the problem. The reason they were immature was because their hearts had grown hard over the information they had heard. Their drifting, their passivity, their carelessness with the truth had become like earplugs to their spiritual ears. The Bible was uninteresting to them. Desire to hear it had faded away. And instead of anticipation, they were experiencing kind of a yawning. They didn't ask questions anymore. They weren't really interested in asking questions anymore about, about Jesus. They had grown apathetic 
Theology had, has bored them now, and they have no interest in God himself. In many ways, they were like the, uh, the German church back in 1932 uh, when Hitler was kind of coming into power. I'm, I'm reading right now, and you're going to hear this a lot because it's just what I'm reading, so I'm going to bring this to bear. But I'm reading a biography by Dietrich, on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor back in Germany during, in between World War I and World War II and into World War II, and how he, one of the few pastors, unfortunately, who actually stood up to Hitler. One day, uh, he actually stood up before the church. It was on Reformation Day, if you can imagine, in Germany back in 1932. It was like Independence Day. And typically for the church, that was where you'd celebrate. You would preach on just kind of how great Germany was and blah, blah, blah. Like we would, some churches here would preach on how great America was and during July 4th, right? And that, that's what they were expecting. They invited a young Bonhoeffer, 25 years old, to stand in the pulpit and preach at the biggest church in Germany. He gets up there and he reads from Revelation 2, 4 through 5. And if you're familiar with that passage, that's the passage that talks about Jesus addressing a church that you have forgotten your first love. You imagine how this went? 25-year-old Bonhoeffer stands up there before the church who had basically bought a, a, a bill of goods from Hitler. They had started to listen to whatever he had to say instead of what Jesus had to say. And he addressed them. And he told them, guys, you're in the 11th hour. You're in the 11th hour, and you're leaving your first love. You were you're already dying, if not already dead. <laughs> this is how he addressed the biggest church in Germany during that time. And he warned them to stop playing church and to grow up. And eventually that cost him his life. He ended up dying as a martyr because of his commitment to Jesus and calling out the church. And really the issue was calling out the church to follow Jesus instead of follow Hitler. And they killed him over it. See, how does this happen? How does one come to have a hardness of heart and stop responding to God's word? What happens when you, when you do not trust and act on the truth that God reveals to you in his word? Right? You have to respond to the truth that God reveals to you in his word. You can't just take that lightly and move on and say, I'm just going to gather more information. The Puritans had a famous statement they would use where they said that the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay, and that's what was happening. The revelation of the sun of God was hardening their hearts instead of melting their hearts. So, um, so their immaturity, again, wasn't uh, a problem, uh, an intellectual problem, but it was a moral problem. Um, think about it. Who in Jesus' time were, were the most immature people? Who were the people who were having a hissy fit over, like, you know, not washing hands? Who was it that was upset about, you know, doing something and serving somebody on, on a Sunday? It was the Pharisees, right? And who were they? The, the people who had the most information in their head. Information doesn't make you mature. They had a moral problem. They refused to submit to what or rather who was right in front of them. Friends, Jesus didn't come down because people lacked information and education. He came down to die for our sins, to change our wills, and to move us from, from passivity to passion, which would result in a change of mind and altering the direction of the entire life. Let me, let me dig the knife a little deeper. I was told uh, last week, I was, I was what I called, they, they said I wasn't preaching anymore. They said I was meddling, apparently. That was a word I never heard before, so I'm going to meddle for a little bit here. If you've been here a while, and you've heard God's word over and over and over again, and you're still immature, you say, what does that mean? Has your life not changed? Do you not see any difference in your life over the past year, two years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years? My friends, it's not because of a lack of information. It's not because of a lack of information. 
you have that in the book in front of you, and we strive to preach the word of God here, and we try to give you classes, and we strive to, to, to devote our Sunday school classes, and we're still digging in the word day after day after day. The problem is because you refuse to submit to what Jesus has already revealed to you, and your heart has grown cold over that. God has made it very clear what it means to obey him. And because you refuse to obey him and compromise or try to redefine what he tells you, you will find yourself getting cold, callous, passive, and immature, unable to really dig deep into the word in that way, and honestly just lacking the desire to anyway. The pathway to immaturity is not first becoming an intelligent person, it's first becoming an obedient person, obeying what God has revealed to you in his word. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Right? They shall see God. Stop listening to God's word is deadly. Understand that. You may not be in that spot today. You may be eager to hear God's word, but you need to hear me say this because maybe next year, maybe next week, you're going to be dull of hearing. And you're going to need to remember that it is deadly to stop listening so as to obey God's word. That's what I mean by listening. Not just listening as in I'm taking information, taking notes down, but listening so as to respond to what God has revealed in his word. I've seen so many people in ministry over my, over my time and 20 years of ministry, I've just seen people drop like flies. And they just stop being in awe of him. Slowly but surely, you just see it. They just stop being in awe is where it starts. And they start just drifting a little bit. And slowly but surely, just stop appearing and stop showing up. They become immature. They start behaving and acting like little boys and girls, making decisions like they're tiny and small and an adolescent person. Listen to what Jesus says. And you listen carefully to this. Luke 8, 18. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. If you hear well, more will be given to you. And from the one who has not, who doesn't listen well, even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. Matthew 13, Jesus said, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they, have, they can barely hear, and their eyes have grown closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Richard Baxter, old Puritan, said this, Come not to hear with a careless heart, as if you were to hear a matter that little concerned you, but come with the sense of the unspeakable weight, necessity, and consequence of the holy word which you are to hear. Make it your work with diligence to apply the word as you are hearing it. You have work to do as well as the preacher and should all the time be as busy as he. You must open your mouths and digest it, for, any, for another cannot digest it for you. Therefore, be all the while at work and abhor an idle heart in hearing. Number two, a result of immaturity. He gives us two results here in this passage. It makes it very clear the results of immaturity, what happens to us. Two things. We, we, we digress is first thing, and then we, we lack discernment. Just look at this. Digression starts to happen. Verse 12. Further, by this time you ought to be teachers. You ought to have uh, progressed. You need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Now, in this context, in this culture, to say that one is able to teach was the Greek way of saying that uh, you, you have a mature grasp on the subject. He's not speaking of giftedness here, but rather maturity. As if the writer kind of arrives on the scene at the church, hadn't seen them in a while. And as he arrives on the scene, gathering and considering the amount of time that they had been Christians, he marvels at the fact that they have digressed 
in their walk with Jesus rather than make progress. He's shocked. They're basically kind of big babies is what he's saying. He says they were still drinking milk when by all appearances they are physically and intellectually adults. And the strangest part is they have, they at one time moved beyond that. Do you get that from the text? At one time they had moved beyond milk and now they have gone back to it. A baby does not need, doesn't come to need milk, right? They're born with that need. The only person who comes to need milk, to need baby food, is someone who has gone back to childhood. So you see that they have digressed, they've gone backwards. And this is where passivity takes you. You're never neutral. If you cease to do anything, you cease to pursue Christ, you go backwards. You don't stay the same. You have to understand that. We, we, we like to think that if I'm just going to be neutral here, I'm just going to kind of just kind of take up some space and maybe come on Sundays and I'll do my thing and I'll be okay. It's like, no, you're going backwards whether you realize that or not if you're not going forward. If you don't make progress, you regress. And the regression puts a strain on the church because instead of people in the church being mature enough and it being enough disciples in the church to disciple other people who are new in the faith, you end up having people who have been there a long time who aren't able to disciple anyone. And so now the pastors have to do discipling of everybody instead of the body being equipped to disciple others. And this is why later on in the book, he'll address this. He'll say in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That's why he says that. The, the pastors are groaning, he says. They're, they're, trying to, they're doing all the work, and no one's really growing, and they're having to do all the work, and they're not others discipling others. Listen, if we're not more knowledgeable in the faith than a year ago, if we're not growing in holiness, if we're not more like Jesus than a year ago, if we're not more committed to Christ and his church than we were a year ago, then you need to check your heart. You need to check what is going on inside. Check the, the passivity meter. Even more, if you are sliding, if you're losing your grasp on things that were once very clear, caring less about God and holiness in the world, you had better drop everything and tend to your souls immediately. It is a warning sign from God to wake up. Number two is a lack of discernment results in this kind of immaturity. He says in verse 13, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Solid food is for the mature those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What these guys lack is the ability to choose the right path. The, the inability to follow Jesus in rebellion against the culture. Not being pressed into the cultural mold, but going against the grain, going upstream, as it were, against the culture that's pressing them back. Rather, they're, they're, they're not maturing. They're not taking the lead. They're not looking to others. They're not saying, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus. Instead, they hide behind some false sense of humility, you know, of like, oh, don't follow me, you know, I'm, I'm not Jesus, you know, I'm just, just a broken person, don't follow me. It's like, no, you need to have the maturity enough to look back and look at others and say, you know what, follow me as I follow Jesus. Can you say that to people? You should be able to say that, and that's not a prideful statement. Yeah, you're broken. Yes, that's true. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, that's true. But you should have enough maturity in your life, if you've been here for a long time, to be able to pursue Christ and look at others and say, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus. Now, a lack of discernment here is understandable, again, in a toddler, right? They'll put almost, think about it, a toddler will put almost anything in their mouth. If you have them, you know this, right? They'll touch anything they can reach. They will go anywhere that they can manage to waddle, right? They will just make their way there, and they will just go. They have no concept of what is good for them. They have no concept of what is bad, what is helpful, what is dangerous. They just, they lack discernment, okay? 
If you got toddlers, you can look at them and go, you have no discernment. And that's okay, because that's definitely true. Okay? They lack discernment. But as they mature, okay, they grow in discernment. They grow in the ability to know, hey, this is good to eat. This is not good to eat. <laughs> this is okay to touch. This is not okay to touch. This is a good place to go. This is not a good place to go. Right? They learn boundaries. They learn the law of consequences. This is all part of that maturing process. But these guys have, don't have that. They don't know the ability to choose. They don't have the ability to choose right from wrong. They don't know the right path to go. They don't know what to touch, not to touch, right? Where to go, not to go. And the problems with Christian in the, Christians in this church in Rome, and possibly some in this room today, is just a lack of discernment. You either don't know or refuse to obey what you know. And as a result, you're immature because the amount of years you are a Christian does not automatically equal the amount of years of maturity in Christ. It just doesn't happen automatically. Do you know that? The amount of years in occupying the pew does not equal the amount of years of maturity in Christ. You have got to put in the work. You've got to put in the work. And the image, I love the image here the writer gives us. It's actually quite startling. He says that the immature, he uses an athletic metaphor here. And he says the immature person is almost like an athlete on a sports team who is content to not only sit the sidelines during the game. He's like, no, I don't need to get in the game. I'm good. I'll just cheer my, my teammates on. He doesn't even want to get into practice. He's like Allen Iverson, right? It's just practice, man. It's just practice. I don't know if that's dating me or not, but practice. He's like, I don't want to practice. I don't even want to get in the game. I just want to sit on the sidelines, and I'm okay with that. That's kind of the idea here. They will listen to the coach. They will watch what's going on, but they just don't want to get on the floor. They don't want to get in the game. Is that any of you today? You're content to watch, you continue to listen, you continue to observe, maybe give a little round of applause, like, oh, that's great, but you don't ever get in the game. You don't jump into ministry. You're not discipling people. You're not jumping into people's lives. You're not looking for new people. You're just taking up space and just applauding. Stop applauding and get in the game, right? Get into the game. And that's what they're lacking here. They're not in it. So many Christians are content with just hearing a good sermon, taking down some notes, and then going about their lives in the same manner as before, where Jesus makes no difference at all. They don't want to practice. Uh, they don't want to obey Jesus. They just want to take up space, sit, soak, and sour away, right? Get the information, just sour away. Taking information, but not obeying what they hear, and not worshiping Jesus who is revealed to them, but rather yawning at the God who died and offers life to them. And instead, instead, they walk out of church, and they go into the culture, and they fit right into it. They aren't rebels. They're conformists. <laughs> They're just forming to the mold of the culture instead of rebelling against the culture and following Jesus going the opposite direction. Be a rebel. I, does that, does that, even say, that sounds weird, doesn't it? Be a rebel. Be a rebel against the passivity and immaturity of the culture around you. Be a rebel and follow Jesus against that. You can literally be a Christian and be a rebel, okay? That's what I'm saying. Go against the culture. Follow Jesus. That is rebellion. I mean, pick up your Bible and read it. That's pretty much rebellion most places, right? I mean, that's just, you're going the opposite direction. Stop fitting into the mold. You, like them, need to decide if you're going to embrace the gospel or not. And if you do, you will become discerning. Really, the idea of the word here, I love this, if you're a teacher, the word for discerning here is the word credentialed. So we're credentialed. It's an educational term. It's used for those who completed a course. He says you'll become discerning. You'll become credentialed. You get credentialed in the gospel by listening to it, 
looking at the cross, meditating on that till your heart is melted and you move out and you obey to make much of Jesus, right? It takes constant practice, is what he says. Constant practice, constant exercise. And then you become, as you, James says, not just a, a hearer of the word, you become a doer, right? That's, what, that's the ultimate goal. You practice what Jesus tells you to do. It also must be applied and believed, or it is a useless narrative. It's a nice story with no real-life application. Listening so as to obey is what changes people, watching, looking, staring at the word of God, the gospel, and taking that in and applying that. So are you making progress today? Are you making progress? Just do a quick evaluation of yourself. You a year ago, you today. Are you progressing? Are you, are you more like Jesus or less like him? You're not, you're not the same, just so you know. You're not the same, okay? Get that option out of your mind. Are you more like Jesus or less like Jesus from a year ago? Are you more interested in the things of God than you were a year ago? Are you in, in someone else's life and discipling them and caring for them more this year than you were last? Are you discerning? Are you rebelling against the culture of immaturity and passivity around you, or are you just conforming to it? Are you obeying what's revealed to you in the scriptures? But if you want to change, how do you do that? Here's the first, uh, last point, number three. The solution to immaturity, the first three verses here of Hebrews 6. Let us leave, he says, the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now he says here, you know, the solution is very clear. He says at the very end, he says, and this we will do if God permits now, the idea here is press on, work hard by the grace of God. <laughs> we have seen that, that the cause of immaturity is not a lack of information, but rather callousness. And the result of their immaturity is that they have digressed in their walk with Jesus and have very little discernment. The result is they are passive and immature. And the only way they're going to move forward, the only way they're going to move ahead, the only way they're going to, going to do that is they're going to have to step out in faith in the direction of Jesus and then take another step of faith in the direction of Jesus. It's just looking, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep reading. I'm going to keep taking steps of obedience. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep loving on people. I'm going to keep doing it. Even if I don't sense an immediate change, I'm just going to keep at it. Because why? Because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And the writer here begins to list a, a, so, a sort of uh, catechism, we would say, of the early church. Uh, they would use this kind of uh, device, as it were, to discern if a person was a believer or not. Do they understand the, ele- the doctrines of Christ? The, the, the elementary, when he says elementary, is the idea of what it requires one to be a believer. Does he understand that? And are they ready to be baptized and brought into the church as members? Right? This is kind of their discernment or kind of their, their catechism. And it's really three areas. If you summarize these three areas, he lists. One is soteriology, kind of the study of salvation. Did, in other words, did they really repent and place their faith in Christ is the first question. And then there's an area of theology called pneumatology here, the study of the Holy Spirit. Do they show evidence of the work of the Spirit in their lives? And the last one here is the study of eschatology, the study of end times. Do, do, are they confident that when they die, that they will stand before God and they'll be, they'll be entered into heaven? Do they, do they have that confidence? So see, there were all questions of are they, are they really a believer? Do they understand the gospel? And all these were understood and embraced to make one a Christian, getting them walking with Jesus. All three areas. It's almost like talking about justification, sanctification, glorification is really the three ideas. And it's really basic doctrine to build on. Right? It's not something to leave behind, as it were. We, we build on it. He's not telling them to move on from Jesus. He's telling them to press harder into him. It started with repentance, he says here, from dead works and dead faith. 
This is a turning from self-salvation to faith in Jesus for salvation. Turning from belief in self-effort to reach God to belief in Jesus' effort to, for you to reach God through him. And then once a person repented of their, uh, of, their, uh, of their sins, they became a child of God. This washing phrase here in the Hebrews is most likely a reference to what we call spirit baptism, which happens when a person puts their faith in Christ, they become baptized by the spirit. Um, and the laying on of hands would be the confirmation of uh, the leadership, the pastor of the church, confirming, yes, we, we see evidence of faith in this person's life. Lastly, once a person has repented, been confirmed in their faith, they were taught about what would happen in the future when they died. They would be resurrected from the dead when Jesus returned and judgment would take place for those who put their faith in Jesus entering heaven and new earth, those who rejected Jesus entering hell like a fire. Those are the basic elements of understanding of the gospel. And now all of that didn't make them mature, okay? It made them a baby. <laughs> it made them a baby. This was the basics. This all put them on the path to begin following Jesus. To use uh, Bunyan's analogy here, it made them a pilgrim, but the pilgrim needed to make progress, right? Need to move ahead. And the writer is saying, if you're going to mature, then you have to build on this original confession. You have to put your head down. You've got to go hard after Jesus. You've got to dig deeper. You can't just look at our conversion experience as the essence of our Christian life, as great as it is. That experience can't bring one to maturity. We've got to continue to move on. So how do we do that? How do we press on to maturity? Again, the writer says in verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. Basically, the writer is pointing them to the power that they can access to get moving. The grace of a sovereign God is really what he's going after. Remember, they're not moving ahead, okay, because of two things, the hardness of heart that they have and also fear of moving ahead, which we've talked about, all the external pressures, And the only way that a hard heart will break and the only way that fear will melt is by looking at the grace of a sovereign God. They need to understand that the hands that were once nailed to the cross now sway the scepter of the universe. They can step out in faith now, right? They can take risks now. They can love the unlovable now. They can step out and be like Jesus now because he's got them, right? Jesus ascended. He's on his throne. He's ruling that's what he's been teaching all along. They were, they were only going to make progress as they understood God's sovereign hand to reach out to them. But just understanding God's sovereignty won't do it. We need to see God's grace as well. We need to see the gospel. That's what he talks about. This means that growth and maturity and following Jesus is going to be more than just a theology class. Now, I'm, I'm a high advocate of theology. I think everybody in here should know theology. Everyone here should be studying theology. Everyone in here, if you're a Christian, should read some kind of theology. Yes, we need to move into that. That is a good thing. But it comes from passionately, unashamedly, fearlessly going hard after Jesus and pressing into the gospel story. Grace, the grace of God is what breaks hard hearts. It's what melts way away fear without grace without the gospel my friends you would just press on to to find rules to obey and you'll just rewrite your own story you'll reorient your life religiously and morally and in many ways you'll actually run the opposite direction of jesus and become more confident in your own self you need to focus on the grace of god on the person and work of jesus and that biography i'm reading That was Bonhoeffer's criticism. He came back to America back in the mid-1920s. He visited New York during that time. And and he was talking about the the seminaries and everyone was fighting over doctrine and everything else. And he noticed in the midst of all the fighting, he made an observation. He said, there was a lot of talk about theology. 
And there was a lot of talk about the Bible, but I never heard Jesus. That's what he said. I never heard Jesus. I heard all these people arguing over theology and the Bible, but no one was talking about Jesus. And he, he, he couldn't find a church. He kept going around all these different churches in New York trying to find one. Can someone please preach Jesus to me? Uh, Paul said in Titus 2.11, he talks about the, the power of the grace of God here to transform us. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And, and it's the grace of God that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, right? The grace of God is what transforms us in that way. You need to see the gospel every day. You need to go hard after knowing and loving Jesus every day. Why? Because your heart is just set to default to go back to religious activities and religious checking the boxes. And with religion comes fear and cowardice and passivity and immaturity. You don't ever progress because it's all about you and what you need to do for God. When you feel that, you feel that way, you get paralyzed, always wondering if you've ever done enough. But in the gospel, you see Jesus hanging on the cross, dying for your sin, rising again, ascending to a throne, and, and you see him call you son and call you daughter, and you realize that it's, it's, about, it's not about you, it's about him and what he's done for you, and that power in that gospel is what motivates you to move out. That's the stimulus to maturity and to take risks for Jesus and to move out. Why? Because who gives a rip anymore what people think? I don't care anymore. Jesus got me. I'm his. I can move out. I can take risks. I can love the unlovable. I can love people. He's worth it. Jesus is better than immaturity. He's better than passivity. I don't want to sit on the sidelines anymore. Do you understand that? When you get the gospel, when you see what Jesus has done for you, and you press into that, and you see that grace and power offered to you, you want to get in the game. You don't want to just sit there. You're not defined anymore by the culture around you. You're, you're defined by your status as a son and daughter of God. Immaturity isn't your calling card anymore. Jesus is. This is so much more than... Oh, yeah, 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 you know, Jesus died for my sins. This is looking long enough and hard enough to where your life, your affections, your mind, your will are altered. But you've got to put in the work. You have to get off the sidelines. You've got to dig in the word. You've got to go hard after Jesus. Your life narrative must be defined by your relationship to Jesus, not by the culture. Only then will your heart begin to change. This little church in Rome is staggering, Okay. They're stuck in immaturity because they either refuse to obey what God has laid out for them or just too afraid to obey because of the results of following him. But my friends, Jesus is worth following. Jesus is worth the effort. Do you hear me? He's worth the effort. He's worth the pursuit. He's worth putting in the time and the effort to become more like Jesus, and he's worth the pursuit of loving other people. Be willing to take the risks and follow Jesus into maturity and show the world his life through you. Paul put it this way, Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, by all the grace he's written about in the first 11 chapters of Romans, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, not a dead one, a living one, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. This is your act of worship. Don't be conformed to this world of immaturity and passivity, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is paralleled exactly with Hebrews. You gain, you gain discernment, you gain maturity. As we, we go to communion, and the table's in the front of the back, and there's bread and there's juice. As we take those, we take those in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. We reflect on the sacrifice he gave and the relationship he gave us with God. And we do that and we remember that, and we do our confession, okay? We take some time to confess, God, I'm, I'm just not as mature as I should be. 
Find those, ask the Spirit of God to discern and work through you to discern, God, where is it in me that I have digressed and not progressed? Where do I need to repent and turn and pick up the torch and start running? Where is it? We all got them. We all got space. We all got area. Maybe it says a dad. Maybe it's a husband. Maybe it's a, a father. Maybe it's a wife, mother. Maybe it's as an as a, as a employee or, a, or an employer or a boss. Maybe it's as a teacher. Whatever it is, right? Find that area in your life. Ask God to search you. Where have I gone passive here? Where have I stopped pursuing and becoming more like Jesus in this particular area? And ask God to transform you. And go to the table. Take the grace and realize there's grace for you. There's grace offered in the personal work of Jesus. That's why we take it to remember that and give our offerings as a response. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. God, we all admit that we, we lack in very specific areas in our life maturity. We have ceased to, to be more like you in different areas, and I pray, God, that you would show each of us this morning where we lack. God, help us to communicate that with someone else and hold us accountable to that, where, God, we need to work. Give us transparency and honesty with one another, that your spirit may work among us, that, God, corporately we become more like you in every area, so that, God, we resemble you, so that the world may see you, and so that, God, people may come to know you through your gospel. Use us, God. Change us. In Jesus' name, amen.